Thank you, Pastor James. Uh, we are going to read out of John 21 today if you want to open your Bibles there. Um, I wanted to also just extend a big thank you to our church family and a big welcome in to anyone new uh, who visited us on Easter. We're so happy that you're here. And our church family, you are awesome. We appreciate you. We were able to not only invite 25% more than last Easter into our building, but we didn't have to do overflow at a single gathering. So thank you for anyone who made adjustments in your schedules. We really appreciate it. And we loved celebrating Easter with you and with everyone that was able to join us. I'm going to pray over our time. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we, we know there's a battle. We know there's a battle that's um, happening. We, we recognize it. We, we sense this urgency to pray over those who are feeling withdrawn, those who are feeling um, oppression, those who are, are walking through darkness, Lord. And so in this place, I just pray over our time together. I pray over Pastor Lane. I pray as he delivers this very vital and important message today that you would inhabit this place, that you would inhabit our people, that you would inhabit even those watching online, Lord, that they would know that this message and you love them and you are for them and you are walking with them, Lord. We pray over this time together. Amen. All right, we are reading the entire chapter of John 21. So, ready? <laughs> After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the nets to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it, to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the, from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire, fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and Though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone will fasten the belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus and the beloved disciple Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that you that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he will remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if it is my will that he will remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many others, other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I heard some of those Presbyterians in the room. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm the lead pastor here at Red Hills Church. And uh, I'm really glad that Kate didn't quit when I asked her to read an entire chapter of the <laughs> scriptures this morning. You know, oh, first, before we start, he is risen. There we go. Yeah, last week we celebrated this profound hope that we all have in Jesus, right? That because of his sacrificial love and victory of the resurrection, the death has lost its sting. Jesus has conquered the grave, and we have begun a new chapter in the universe. Okay, now what? <laughs> what do we do now? Well, Easter inaugurated the season on the church calendar known as Eastertide or Easter time. It's this 40 to 50 day period between Resurrection Sunday and the Pentecost, and it coincides with the time that Jesus walked the earth after the resurrection and before he ascended. And Jesus followers, we get to mark this time with feasting and with celebrating, right? The, the Lent leading up to this point was like fasting and praying and lamenting. And now we enter into a season where we get to feast and celebrate. So go have some cake. Your pastor approves. Um, we get to recognize the triumph of Jesus over the grave. So the teaching that we're beginning today is called Rejoice, Living Out the Joy of the Resurrection. And this is going to go inside with Easter time. We get to explore what it looks like to be a people who rejoice and live out the good news of the resurrection. So how do we do that? Well, joy tends to propagate in our lives when there are three things that are kind of lined up. We know who we are, we know where we belong, and we know what we're doing. We know what our purpose is. One of the first series that I had the joy of giving here at this church was about this, our identity, our belonging, and our purpose. One way that we say this is like, uh, uh, why am I here? Or what I hear a lot is, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> What am I doing with my life? 
This question is a huge one for all of us, but especially for young people, right? I, I worked with young adults at B4 Church for four years in Beaverton, and one of the biggest things that people wrestle with is, I just don't know what God wants me to do with my life. What, do I, what am I going to do? But this question also transcends just like young adulthood, right? A lot of transitions that happen in our lives, they kind of bring this question up again, yeah? Okay, my role was eliminated at my company. Now what do I do? My job can now be done by AI. Now what? Okay, I'm getting married and I'm moving to a new state. I just had a kid, now I need to be home part-time or full-time. Now what? Okay, I graduated college with a degree that I've suddenly lost interest in. Now what? I've just retired, and now I'm getting used to a new rhythm that frankly is less enjoyable than I thought it was going to be. Now what? You fill in the blank, right? You fill in the blank. Human beings crave purpose. When we don't have purpose, when we don't have a mission, when we don't have an objective, we feel like we're wandering. We feel like we're lost. What am I doing with my life? Why am I here? What if it were true that followers of Jesus, no matter what we do, where we are, or how long we're doing it, that our mission and our purpose, that our objective never changes? As people who follow Jesus, we are able to embrace the joy of life with Jesus when we have our identity rooted in him, we're embraced by his loving family, and we know why we're here. We know what the mission is. And that's what I want to talk about today. There's a theological term that talks about this. It's called the Missio Dei. Can you say Missio Dei? I W all scholars. Well done. This is Latin for the mission of God. Whether or not you realize it, when you say yes to Jesus, we are signing up for Dumbledore's army. Oh, wait, wrong franchise. We are signing up. That joke was for like five of you. Um, when we say yes to Jesus, there'll be more jokes for the rest of you, okay? When we say yes to Jesus, we sign up for the Missio Dei, for the mission of God, because we are invited by Christ to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to carry out the work of God. And the journey of Peter in this story is a really helpful one for us because it shows us how God can take someone really ordinary like Peter, like you and me, and use them to carry out his mission. So let's go to the text. Okay, so there's some background information on chapter 21 that I just want to make you aware of. There's some editorial questions when it comes to chapter 21 itself, because chapter 20 was the passage that we read last week, the resurrection. Pretty climactic, pretty like fireworks ending, right? Jesus conquers the grave, he gives the Holy Spirit, he, uh, he appears to the disciples, and then he says this at the very end, this is what John says. These are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Amen, hallelujah, the lights come up, people wipe the popcorn off their laps, they put on their jackets, but the true Marvel fans know that there's something coming, a post credit scene, right? John chapter 21 is known as an epilogue to this main story, and there's a couple of theories as to why 21 feels like this. Some scholars debate about this. They think, one, it was added by John later after the fact. So John wrote the Gospel of John and then saw that chapter 20 later in his life, he was like, ah, I want to add something else. Another tradition holds that actually followers and disciples of John wrote the last chapter in John's name, which sounds weird to us, but actually there's biblical precedent for that. And the third is that John wrote this all at the same time. Here's the thing. At the end of the day, I don't think it matters very much. 
I would argue that any of these theories is fine. The fact is the earliest manuscripts of John all have chapter 21 in them. The early church always regarded chapter 21 as authoritative. So guess what? It was canonized. We can trust that this chapter is beneficial for us today, that it is a gift from God to us. And it has nothing to do with the sermon. I just like to know about what I'm learning about, so I wanted to give you the same privilege. Okay, so Jesus, in the last chapter, chapter 20, he was resurrected, he appeared to Mary, he appeared to the disciples, he gives the Holy Spirit, he appeared to Thomas, and now we come upon a group of the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and they're fishing. Most of these men were fishermen before they <laughs> encountered Jesus, and they've continued in this trade, right? And we've got Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, and then John writes two others, <laughs> Those poor guys, those other disciples that are not mentioned very much in the scriptures, I would have a complex, right? There John goes again, writing about himself, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. That was for the rest of you. Uh, anyone under 25 is like, what are you talking about? Um, so while they're waiting for Jesus to make his next move, they get back to what they've always known. They're fishing. And this is what they were doing when Jesus first came to them and invited them to follow him, right? We remember in the gospel according to Luke, we read that the disciples were out on the water, they'd been fishing all night, and Jesus tells them, hey, you guys catch anything? No, we haven't caught anything. Okay, cast your nets in again. Look, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Why would we suddenly catch fish now? See, the way it worked was that they would fish at night because all the fish come to the surface of the water at night, and that's when they're feeding. So that's the best time to catch them. And so they, they catch them during the night, and then during the morning, that's when they sell their fish. So everyone knows... That peak feeding time is over. If you haven't caught fish by now, you're not going to catch fish. But there's something about Jesus that invites Peter to trust him. Something about Jesus that invites him to trust him. So he does as he says. And they get so many fish that the, that the nets begin to break and the boats begin to sink. These are fishing nets and fishing boats. They're literally built for this and they're insufficient. The point being made here is that there's a ridiculous amount, and the fishermen are blown away, not because, oh, this has never happened before, but because it actually was miraculous. This was impossible. And then Jesus says, follow me. So they immediately leave behind their broken nets and their sunken boat, and they follow Jesus. Where the disciples first accepted Jesus' invitation to follow, now in his resurrected life, they receive a new invitation, especially Peter. The story in this chapter is very similar as the way it happened last time. They're out all night, they catch nothing. And then someone calls from the shore, and they realize that it's Jesus because after they cast their nets back in, they catch 153 fish, according to the text. But this time, the nets don't break, and the boat doesn't sink. There's actually imagery here about the growth of the disciples, specifically in Peter, because this is about Peter's redemption story, really. Because he tells them three years before this, follow me and become fishers of people. Back then, the nets and the boats, they were insufficient to handle the harvest that Jesus was bringing. But now, having walked with Jesus, having witnessed the resurrection, having been empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's ready. He now has what he needs from God to carry out an unfathomable mission. I had a mentor who used to say that maturity in Christ looks like becoming the kind of person that God can trust with his kingdom. That's what maturity looks like. See, Peter is now walking with a different kind of authority and a different kind of empowerment, right? There's a lesson in here for us, and it's a very simple one. It's this. We can trust Jesus. We can trust Jesus. I know, pretty basic, but how often do we forget this very simple truth? We can trust Jesus. Because when the disciples are fishing, Jesus asks them to do something that is against industry standards, right? 
He asked them to engage in a practice that no fisherman that knows anything would ever attempt because it's foolish. And Jesus is teaching us that he's always going to meet us in our faith. That sometimes he's going to ask us to do things that don't make sense and that go against our logic, but because he's asking us to do it, we can trust him and he's going to deliver. We can trust Jesus. There's also this big elephant in the room when it comes to Peter. Peter kind of did some things during the crucifixion, didn't he? He denied Jesus publicly three times. Three times denies Jesus. And Jesus, foreseeing that this was going to happen, he told Peter it was going to happen, and he washed his feet anyway that night. You can just imagine the shame that Peter feels, right? I know I would. We read that while Peter was fishing that he was naked. It doesn't mean that he was in his birthday suit. What this means is that he probably just took off his outer robe because he's a fisherman. He needs to go into the water, adjust the nets, that kind of thing. But when he realizes, like, oh, it's Jesus at the shore, he puts on his robe, which is a really heavy tunic. Even if he tied it around his waist, that would have been really cumbersome, swimming 100 yards in that thing. I wonder if there's garden imagery here again. Because last week we were in the chapter right before this, right? We see all the garden imagery. I wonder if in the same way that Adam and Eve made clothes for themselves because they felt ashamed, if Peter feels ashamed. So before coming to Jesus, he puts on his robe, even though they're about to take the boat in. (laughs) I wonder. I wonder about Peter's shame. We have to imagine that Jesus has already forgiven Peter. We know that he died for Peter. But for Peter's sake, there actually needs to be something else in the story. There needs to be a moment of reconciliation that needs to take place. And Jesus doesn't have to do this, but Peter, or sorry, Jesus offers a reversal for Peter's denial. Peter was asked three times the night of the crucifixion if he knew Jesus, and he denied it. But apparently Jesus wants to see Peter not just forgiven, but redeemed. Peter denied Jesus three times, and now he gives them an opportunity to publicly affirm his trust in him three times. There's a few things going on here. One is that there's an ancient Near East culture about publicly asking someone to do something in front of other people. It was like a charge. The closest thing I could think of is like when we put our hand on a Bible before we swear into court. It's like a binding legal contract. It's a really big deal. So Jesus is giving Peter a public charge to step into the new mission, feed my lambs. Three was also a really big deal in the Bible, right? We see that two was a really big deal. When you say something twice, it's to emphasize its importance. Think about when you say someone's name, right? When Jesus says, Martha, Martha. It's this idea like, listen to what I'm about to tell you because this is very important. So two is a big deal. When we get to three, this is like ultimate importance, the biggest of biggest deals. We think about Ezekiel, Revelation. We see angels that are encircling the throne of God. What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy holy. This is a really big deal. Jesus is saying that what I'm telling you to do, this is the most important thing to me. Feed my sheep. The, for those of you who play Jeopardy, um, the theological term for this is triason. You're welcome. Or try, try scion. All right, third very powerful thing that's happening here. Jesus is reversing the curse. Jesus is reversing the curse. There's a redemption arc here for Peter, right? He gives him an opportunity to publicly resurrect his trust in him. Life in Jesus is an opportunity, friends, not only to cease a cycle of brokenness, but to step into a reversal of that story. Because Jesus has defeated the curse, now we get to partner with him in the blessing. Do you see? It's a reversal. 
There are two sides to our journey with Jesus. There's the cross and there's the resurrection. We are equally people of the cross and of the resurrection, right? But in the cross, we're forgiven. The, the cross is the pathway of Christ's blood that flows like water and blood. That I know it sounds weird, but it cleanses us of shame and sin and filth. And then there's the resurrection. Yes, you've been forgiven, but now we aren't just done with our old life. We're beginning a new one. That's the resurrection. He calls us into a new kind of existence where we get to be agents of reversal, where we are marked by the curse of sin. Now we get to be the catalyst of God's blessing. It's a reversal. Were you abused as a child? Now you get to not only not abuse your children, but you get to extend the affection and dignity of God to the children around you. Did you grow up in a racist environment? Not only do you get to not be racist now, but you get to embody the mercy and justice of God as you uproot racism around you. Did you get bullied and ridiculed, get ridiculed at school? Not only do you get to live free of condemnation in Jesus, but you get to partner with the church in building a kind of world where every single human soul gets dignity and is recognized as someone who carries the image of God. Did you live in a way that was greedy and self-serving? Now you get to practice radical generosity for the sake of others. Did you use people for your own pleasure and your own selfish gains? You now get to give others the gift of dignity and respect that Jesus wants for them. Did you get delivered from an addiction? You now get to share your story with others and invite them into their freedom from their bondage. When we step into the calling of Christ, not only do we get to escape death and brokenness of our past, we get to participate in the resurrection and the healing of ourselves and others for God's future. That's what this is. What does it mean to be the hands and feet of Jesus? It means that what Jesus has done for me, I now get to contend for in the lives of others. I introduce people to Jesus, and I embody the culture of his kingdom. I embody the culture of his mission. Jesus invites Peter into the mission to feed his sheep. Peter has been feeding people his entire life. And now, Jesus is asking him to feed his sheep. Yes, Peter has a special calling to be Peter. But in all the ways that matter, Peter is given the same mission that all of us are given. I want you to hear this. We are all in full-time ministry. We are all in full-time ministry. Peter was the leader of the church. Why? What, what qualifications did he have? He was not a theologian. He wasn't a great teacher. He wasn't a big political figure. He was a fisherman. And sometimes we see that he didn't have all the lights on all the time up there, right? Notice that when Jesus gives him his calling, he doesn't say, follow me and become a great theologian. Follow me and learn to be a great teacher. Follow me and gain political influence. You know, he, says, he says, follow me and I will take what you've been doing your whole life and I will repurpose it for my glory. You are a fisherman, but now you're going to be fishers of people. You've been feeding human beings your whole life. Now you're going to feed people for my sake. They're going to be my sheep. It was not Peter's influence and knowledge and skill that qualified him for the work of ministry. What qualified him? was that he was called by Jesus, he carried the Holy Spirit, and he trusted and obeyed Jesus. Guess who has the opportunity to step into full-time ministry? Every single person in this room. Every single one of you. We have all been invited into the missio day, into the mission of God. When we answer the call to follow Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, which is the power and the presence and the peace of God, and we have the ability to trust and obey Jesus even if the calling doesn't make sense. 
Your calling is to take your gifts and your skills and to use them in accordance with God's plan to redeem the world. That's your call. You don't need to stop being a fisherman. You don't. You just need to invite Jesus into figuring out how that fits into his plan. And look, maybe that means some of you, especially some of you young people, any youth in the room, maybe, maybe you're going to be a preacher one day. Maybe you will start a nonprofit. Maybe you will be a missionary on the field. Maybe you will be a worship leader. But listen, we can't all work here. Our budget's not set up for that. It's not going to work, right? My specific calling as this specific kind of minister to be Pastor Lane is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Guess what? You're the saints, and wherever you put your feet, that's your ministry. Sorry, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just passionate. (laughs) You're not just a waiter. You're a beloved child of God, cleansed and redeemed and commissioned by him to be sent into that diner to carry the presence of God with you. You're not just a nurse. You're a beloved child of God, redeemed and empowered by him to be a healing presence and the peace of God in that place. You're not just a delivery person. You're a beloved child of God, commissioned by him, given the ability to pray at every single home where you make a delivery, literally inviting the kingdom of God to fall on your root. You're not just a stay-at-home parent. You're a beloved child of God commissioned by him to be an extension of God's affection to his created ones. With every diaper change, with every bowl of mac and cheese, your parenting is worship unto the Lord, holy and consecrated. You're not just a small business owner. You're a beloved child of God commissioned by him to be the influence that you are in the marketplace and in the lives of the people under your employment with integrity and dignity when the competition's going to cut corners and take advantage of people. Do you see? You don't necessarily need to quit your job, but through the power of the resurrection, when Jesus calls us, we are expected to transform our calling. Sure, if you're a drug dealer or an erotic dancer, let's get you to a job fair in Jesus' name. Uh, Yes. But unless you're a crime boss or like you're engaged in some kind of ethical behavior, do whatever you do as if it is unto God in worship because it is. I'm not the only person in this room that's in full-time ministry. That's you. You're the saints. Wherever you put your feet is the ministry. Do you know what the word minister means? It means to serve. That's it. That's what you and I are called to do. We serve the way Jesus served us. We didn't come to be served but to serve. We get to serve people with the heart and love of God, desiring that they would know his love and his mercy and his transformative power. Lane, this is a a message about joy. I'm I'm missing it. (laughs) Listen, are you struggling finding joy in your calling and in your purpose? I get it. I've been there. But here's what's going to help you. If you're asking, what is my calling? What is my purpose? Rest in this. You already have the answer. You are building your corner of the kingdom of heaven with God. If you're asking, what am I doing with my life? You're asking the wrong question. No, turn that question into a prayer and say, God, thank you that you've given me the mission, that you've told me what I'm doing with my life. Dream with me. Help show me how that fits into your picture. Help show me how that fits into your mission. Thank you for inviting me in. Because Jesus doesn't just want you to get by. He doesn't want you to just be forgiven. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to help him reverse the curse. I know that sounds like a cheesy concert series, but reverse the curse. That's what he's invited you to do. 
Now, some of us may have a hard time imagining transforming our career into a calling. I want to acknowledge that that can be really difficult. I get that. Because sometimes our jobs are really hard and our environment is really tough. I do not want to downplay that in Jesus' name. Sometimes it can be exhausting. But maybe we need to stop thinking of ourselves as victims of our environment and start receiving the truth that we are agents on a mission. You're on the battlefield. Sometimes what we need is not always an escape, but rather a way to endure. Oof, okay. And why? Why? Because Jesus endured. On the cross, he endured. You realize that Jesus never stopped ministering? Even while he was being beaten and spit on and degraded and murdered, unjustly executed, he was literally praying for those people. While he hung on the cross, he looked at his disciple and he said, take my mother into your home. He was doing work because while Jesus still had breath in his lungs, he had a mission. That endurance, that's what gives us the ability to endure in any kind of circumstance. Maybe your work environment is difficult and even hostile, but listen to me. Maybe that pain in the neck that's in the next cubicle over, maybe for the next three years, they're going to experience your peace and your non-anxious presence and your listening spirit. And before long, when they finally hit a wall, they're going to open up because they've experienced God's presence in you because of your kindness, because of your compassion. Listen to me. Jennifer, that person in the cubicle over there, sorry if your name's Jennifer. <laughs> Rodrigo, whoever it is. That problematic person, listen to me, they're not your problem. They're your assignment. They're not your project. That's different. But they are your assignment. You are to be the one that recognizes the belovedness in them, the image-bearing nature of them. You are to love them the way Christ loves you, not by belittling or condescending or by going away when it's uncomfortable, but by serving. This is a war that's not being fought with influence and power, friends. It's a war that's won by washing feet. And here's an unsettling truth. Are you ready? When you said yes to Jesus you gave up your right to have human enemies. So who is it? I'm not asking rhetorically. Think of that person. Who is it? Name them. It actually helps. Who really ticks you off? Is it those woke liberals who are ruining the country? Is it those stubborn conservatives that don't have any empathy and refuse to acknowledge your definition of justice? It's okay. Get it out. Name it. It helps. Is it just those young people who don't want to work? Yeah. <laughs> Good to know where you stand, Nick. Um, <laughs> is it those old people who are really out of touch with reality? Think of those people. Think of them, really. Get them in your mind. Do you have them? Jesus died for them. The way that he died for you, he died for them. They are not your problem to avoid. They are your assignment. They're your mission. Look, if your flesh is offended, good. <laughs> Mine is too. This is tough. This is not easy. This is really hard. 
but we are not in a war against flesh and blood, friends. The enemy wants to convince us that we are. Because when we're divided against each other, when we're fighting against human beings instead of contending for them, we become very ineffective. And that's what he wants. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Guys, that's real. That's real. The enemy wants to nullify our effectiveness. He wants to take us out. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy the life that we have to offer. In Jesus' name, we're not going to let him. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, pray for your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward are you getting? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, who are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what if I just want to be around people who have my beliefs and share my values and make me feel safe? That's what the church is for. (laughs) That's what the church is for. And guess what? The only shared value that any of us are really going to have is faith, hope, and love, the greatest of those being how we love one another. That's our shared value. Guys, this is the hospital. This is the healing place. This is the home base. When we come here, we get encouraged. We get built up. We remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God. We embrace the loving community of Jesus. And then we get back to our lives and we get back to work. So whatever you find yourself doing in this life, is it cruciform? Say cruciform. This basically just means cross-shaped. Am I emulating the self-giving love of Jesus wherever I am? Is that my priority? We take our joy in our calling, but we also understand that it comes at a great cost. You know, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to stretch out your hands and you're going to be led where you don't want to go. Tradition holds that Peter was crucified, and he did so upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the way that Jesus was. And tradition holds that John died of old age. Doesn't seem fair, but here's the thing. Whether we die horribly or die asleep in our old age, all of us need to lay our lives down before that even happens. We all die to ourselves first. Keith Ferdinando said this, the Missio Dei purifies the church. It sets it under the cross the only place where it is ever safe. Have we submitted our calling to Jesus? Because you will always feel unfulfilled unless you see the world this way. (laughs) Unless you see the world, unless you see your life, unless you see your calling as a part of God's mission to save the world. You're always going to feel like you're wandering and lost. And here's the thing. When we submit ourselves to Jesus, we read in John 15... That when we do that, when we deny ourselves, pick up our cross, follow him, and we abide in his love, guess what Jesus wants to give us? Joy. There's this unexplainable joy and peace that comes with dying to ourselves. (laughs) Because we now get to live in something that's way bigger than us. There's one more lesson that Peter needs to learn here. So John and Peter, they've had kind of this sort of friendly rivalry, right? John talks about how he's faster than Peter in the Bible. And now Peter receives this profound act of redemption and mission and calling from the resurrected Lord. And even in a beautiful moment like that, he looks back and he goes, yeah, but what about that guy? Really, Peter? (laughs) Look at what's right in front of you, man. Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. 
Mark Twain said that comparison is the death of joy. I think that healthy comparison and admiration can be helpful and inspiring, but there is this competitive and envious kind of comparison, which our culture is really good at right now, that will rob you of your joy and your calling. It will rob it of you. Peter was too envious and too anxious about his own identity to have joy in receiving his calling. Listen to me. God has uniquely and expertly crafted each and every single one of you for a unique calling, specific only to you. Don't miss out on the joy by trying to find someone else's. (laughs) You're going to miss out on yours. I want to bring us to a close here with a quote from one of my favorite Star Trek characters, Dr. Leonard McCoy. He says this, in, a galaxy, in this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of three million Earth-type planets, and in all the universe, three million, million galaxies just like this, and in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Preach it. <laughs> Do not insult your creator by diminishing your dignity, your worth, and your contribution to the kingdom. Don't do that. It's important. Do not underestimate the gap that you leave when you're not here. It matters. And whether your impact is small or big in your mind, it is of paramount importance to Christ. Whether it's three people that you meet your entire life or thousands that you preach to at the masses, it is of equal importance to Jesus. Be faithful to your calling and your story. That's where you find joy. The last quote, we'll go with a real theologian. We'll go with Brother Lawrence. He said this, We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. And that's why we come to communion. Go ahead and take out your elements. And listen to me. I know we do this a lot. Don't let the meaning fade for you. You know why we do this? Because Jesus, his body broken, his blood spilled, is an example of how he lived his life for others, for you, and for me. He poured out his life as a sacrifice because he wants you to be with the Father. When we take this element, these elements, we take upon ourselves the mission of Christ to pour ourselves out in self-giving love for those around us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's atoned for us and he's resurrected us. And now we get to participate in his mission through the power of his spirit to live selflessly for others. And whatever you do, whether you think it's big or small, don't think about the scale. Think about the heart. I changed this diaper out of self-giving love for Jesus. I talked to this person on the park bench out of self-giving love for Jesus. I sit in the back of that restaurant and I flip pancakes all day because I love Jesus. Wherever you go, whatever you do, do it as worship unto the Lord. That's your mission. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. So take it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took this cup and he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. 
that you have taught us exactly why we are here. We thank you that in you we have purpose, that we have meaning, that we have mission. I pray that every single person in this room would walk away feeling encouraged that they are, because they know you, because they're submitted to you, they are doing exactly what you have them doing. Whether it be for a week or for a century, wherever we are, we have our mission. We have our purpose. I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit right now in Jesus' name, that every single soul in this room would receive a new calling from you to feed your sheep. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.